Look, I've listened back to the last interview with Aaron, and I see how my loss of focus affected my usefulness. You, you were right to handle that one without me. I know. It's what I said at the time, and I've been saying it to you ever since. Oh, is that what all those DMs were? Good thing I blocked you. Anyway, I want you to know that I've made the effort to be fully researched on the topics we'll be discussing today, so I can take part without letting the side down. Fully researched? Fully. Just all the research. Okay, then. Tell me what you know. With pleasure. <clears throat> Invented in the late 1800s and made commercially available in the 1920s, a cathode ray tube is a vacuum tube containing one or more electron guns emitting beams of electrons that are manipulated via magnetic or electrostatic deflection to display images on a phosphorescent screen. While used in televisions through the 20th century, by the 2010s, that largely been replaced Yes, by... thank you, thank you. That's enough. You've researched the wrong CRT, haven't you? Uh, no, no, no. I thought you might try to trick me like that. So just to be sure, I researched the other CRT as well. Ah, all right. Go on then. Right. <clears throat> Corneal refractive therapy refers to the use of gas-permeable contact lenses that temporarily reshape the cornea to reduce refractive errors such as myopia, hyperopia, no. and astigmatism. Uh, chemoradiotherapy is a combination of chemotherapy and radiotherapy to treat cancer. It Try again. Chinese remainder theorem? Closer, but no. Catheter-related thrombosis. Gods above and gods below. Critical race theory. Hmm. Never heard of it. Well, I guess I've got more reading to do. You'll, um, you'll wait for me to get back to you before I, you start the interview, right? Of course, of course. Off you... Wait, wait. Did you say you blocked me before? Can't hear you. Researching. Well, for the best, I guess. For the best. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, featuring Josh Addison and M. Dentith. Our guest this week is Aaron Rabinovich, who now has the honour of the fewest number of episodes between appearances. He's the host of Embrace the Void, co-host of Philosophers in Space, and is also a PhD student in the Rutgers Graduate School of Education, specialising in secular moral education. Previously, I noted that we should pay no attention to rumours of him being a member of the Rosicrucians, at which point he claimed he was a Discordium. According to Malakips the Younger, they've never heard of him, which is pretty good evidence Aaron is a member. Malakips is a filthy liar, and I'm willing to debate him on this matter on a platform of his choice. Welcome back, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. And yes, he is a filthy liar. Uh, except for all the things he says that are true. Well, I mean, that's that's the great thing about Discordianism. There's a, a lot of we choose our own truths along that path. And I've I actually pulled out my one of my two copies of the Principia Discordia from the shelf just to prove I actually do have a copy with me in Zhuhai. It also has the notes on it from when I was briefly on Rhys Darby's podcast back in the day talking about the link between the mm. Principia Discordia and the assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald, because they both share, as an author, Kerry Thornley. Mm, interesting. And they're connected both via the Illuminatus trilogy, which um, makes ample references to both things. Um, and of course, I'm sure somewhere in the Discordia, uh, the Principia, they predict um, all of the events, uh, even though the book i think comes after um yeah but yeah having a physical copy that's that's intense um most of us these days just turn to the internet for our internet um uh religion based on memes so this 
This was published by Steve Jackson Games after they bought back control of Illuminati, the card game, and it was printed mm. in the venerable year... Actually, does does not even have... 1994 is the new copyright on on this so it actually it's kind of from a period of time where it wasn't that easy to find stuff online mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and that's one of, the, one of the best card games some of us are immensely old yeah we are we are dating ourselves here so hard but yeah i played that card game in undergrad and it's one of the classics and i hope that the there's talk i think there's a kickstarted digital version that may happen that i would be really excited about yeah actually on the shelf behind me it's probably not particularly visible i have my complete copy of the illuminati card game i bought all the expansions turns out it's a really heavy thing to transport Mm. around the world because the base game not that big but once you buy all the expansions it's bloody heavy i i i'm questioning my life choices well yes yes Uh, (laughs) i mean although a lot of ground to cover if they updated the game for the modern age, it would be interesting to oh. see whether they would change any of the flavor text because it's a little bit like when we talked about the Illuminatus trilogy last time. It's a little bit dated and just a little yeah. bit sexist and a little bit racist. Yep, and a little bit prescient. Um, but yeah, they, they would definitely have to update it to some extent. I I was also going to note, um, it shows up in the background, I think, of quite a few video podcast slash individuals because i think knowledge fight one of their guys has the cards in their background when they do their video q a's as well i think it's i feel like it's a card game that like if you're in this space a lot you have almost certainly played at least once oh yes and it, i mean it is a great game to play especially with the hidden v- hidden victory conditions just sitting there mm. going if no one pays attention to what i'm doing i could win in the next round please don't pay any attention to what i'm doing yeah it actually plays quite well for being so entertaining as well but we're not here to talk about card games so maybe we should put a, a pin on that and talk about that at another time we're here to talk about critical race theory and your recent contratemps with michael Shermer of the skeptic magazine fame now Critical race theory seems like a bit of a big buzzword in the US and to a slightly lesser extent the UK, but I suspect a lot of people outside of those countries don't know what critical race theory or CRT CRT is. So first of all, what's a critical race and why are we theorizing about it? Yeah, and I'm I get a little nervous talking about this because I know you're in a country right now where if I make too many jokes about the conspiratorial nature of something, you could get shut down. But anyway, um, if you ask James, someone like James Lindsay, right, critical race theory is the tip of the communist Chinese spear to destroy Western civilization. Um, no, what what is CRT? CRT is a collection of theories developed in the 70s and onward by um, theorists primarily of color who were interested in trying to understand why after the passage of race neutral laws after the sort of requiring of you know equal rights voting rights acts kind of stuff like that um, why was it the case that there was still 
substantial inequality between the races, essentially, in America. Uh, and they develop a variety of theories that explain these sorts of issues, things like the concept of intersectionality, which had a moment in the sun during Gamergate or thereabouts. If you remember, Sargon of Akkad likes to argue about intersectionality for a while. That was a bit of a precursor to the CRT moral panic. You have other theories. Um, interest convergence is another one. These all sort of come together to basically explain uh, basically explain the concept of systemic racism, right? The idea that you can have a system that is nominally race neutral and that none of the individuals in it are explicitly intending to cause harm to individuals based on their race or anything like that and still have that system produce racially unjust outcomes for a variety of reasons, for a variety of ways. Um, examples would be things like artificial intelligence can can reproduce these things, but also redlining is a classic example. Um, so yeah, it, CRT is that. It starts in the law. It expands into fields like education. It, in education, promotes things like talking more about the moral complexities of history as well as, uh, you know, developing pedagogies that view individuals from marginalized communities as not being sort of deficient and in need of being corrected and saved from their marginalized communities, all these sorts of things. And now it's being sort of targeted as a catch-all term for, as Rufo put it, anything that scares Americans. Okay, so we've got we've got some name dropping here, which some people may may need a bit of background on. So we've got James sure. Lindsay, who most people I suspect who listen to this podcast will have heard of, but maybe we should talk a little bit about him. Sargon of Akkad, which I want to do the the Star Wars line that's a name I haven't heard in a long time, and that he <laughs> he was he was really big five maybe ten years ago but does seem to have disappeared off the map to a large extent and of course chris mm -hmm. rufo who of course we're going to be talking about quite a bit when we talk about your contratemp with michael Shermer, a name which a lot of americans interested in the crt debate probably know but probably isn't that well known outside of the United States. So let's mm. start with the darling of the intellectual dark web, the smartest person in the room, one Dr. James Lindsay. Who is Dr. James Lindsay? Yes, the doctor of mathematics, James Lindsay. Uh, I am very curious to find out how, where you're living, if anyone ever talks about any of this stuff. I think it's probably the case that around here in the, like, non-Twitter world, probably a lot of people don't know who any of these people are, but I do think that CRT itself has become mainstream enough that people know the term. I've, you know, heard people arguing about it at dog parks, and I've heard people talking about it who have fairly blue-collar backgrounds for, you know, if you want to, you know, make it a class kind of thing. I so I do think that this is a widespread enough mainstream enough moral panic that it's worth discussing. So who are these people, right? Dr. James Lindsay is uh, like a guy who starts out like trying to get famous for being an atheist and isn't good enough at it and then starts to complain a lot about woke things by which I mean anything of the social justice -y variety. Um, he publishes a 
series of hoaxes. First, uh, the conceptual penis hoax, which was actually published in Shermer's Skeptic Magazine, quote unquote. Uh, um, that so that one is just him by himself, and he publishes it in a pay-to-play journal, and everybody basically, you know, makes fun of him for thinking that this proves anything about anything. Um, but he claims that it proves that, like, gender theory is made up and fake and easily mocked, et cetera, et cetera. And then he does a second hoax that's more sort of robust, let's say, by very low standards, where him and Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian all individuals who nominally identify as liberal or classic liberal, as they like to call it, to identify, to distinguish them from people who like have evolved their liberalism in the past hundred years. They make a bunch of papers and submit a bunch of them. And a couple of them get published. Some of them in not totally terrible journals. Um, and there's a lot more credulity towards that moral panic or towards that, um, uh, hoax, I would say it. They they wildly overstate what they accomplish, what they proved, what the papers actually were. In some cases, there's lots of issues that were not well addressed. I think by people who should have taken a more skeptical approach. There was also lots of discussion of like what are the legitimate concerns here, having to do with um, the nature of academic publishing, which you and I both know is has many many problems. Um, so yeah, that's. So Lindsay gets famous from that hoax and then basically pivots into far-right Christian conspiracism, anti-governmental conspiracism. He basically pairs up with this guy, Michael O'Fallon, who's a white Christian. Well, he's he's technically half Cuban, but he, I would argue, promotes white Christian nationalism on a website called Sovereign Nations. He's the guy who helps set up New Discourses, which is James Lindsay's website. He's the guy who basically bankrolls and manages Lindsay's, you know, anti-woke startup and, you know, promotes him to a bunch of conservative people and probably helps him get on the radar of folks like Chris Rufo, who is then a former, you know, um, employee of an, a branch of the Discovery Institute, which is the creationist folks who um, has done work like quote unquote documentaries about um, poor people and homeless people. And, ha and then basically Rufo gets famous by picking up this, CRT stuff that that Lindsay has been cultivating, let's say, and promotes it, puts it. Um, he has like a, a, a particular leak where he leaks out um, information of like what's being used in um, training for government employees. And so he ends up on Fox News where he begs Donald Trump to do an executive order banning this kind of training. Trump watches Fox News, unfortunately, and actually listens. And so has Rufo on, you know, to the White House where they actually passed this executive order. Like, this is how this is how policy is made in our country. Let me explain. Like, this is literally how it works. Um, he goes, he gets this executive order made. This is all important because that executive order becomes the template for all of the laws banning divisive ideas, quote unquote, but essentially banning critical race theory and gender theory and queer theory and all these different theories uh, in public schools in all sorts of places, any, anywhere they can get it banned, essentially. Um, so I would say those are like the major figures of this moral panic and how it got sort of wildly, wildly out of hand. Um, and, and just to tie it back to the article, and you can follow up from there, 
you know, my concern in writing this article was to highlight that it wasn't just James Lindsay's desperate need to be seen as intelligent. It wasn't just Chris Rufo's horrifying conservative willingness to do whatever in order to, I don't even know what his actual ends are beyond like boilerplate conservatism, but like his willingness to weaponize critical race theory, like the the larger problem is that there are a group of individuals who self-identify as moderate to progressive, who identify as skeptic, who have very large audiences and who like very credulously have reproduced large swaths of this moral panic um, because they themselves have like a giant blind spot around wokeness and think that like there is an existential problem in wokeness that needs to be quashed. Um, and so they, they picked all of this stuff up, including people like Shermer. Um, and then trying to present that article, I was um, turned down, let's say, uh, in favor of something that would focus more on just Chris Rufo um, and leave out folks like James Lindsay, who Shermer is still using as a resource. Now, the article here is an article that was meant to be appearing in The Skeptic under the aegis of editor Michael Shermer, got published in The Skeptic in the UK. I really do feel they should have different names for those magazines because it is very confusing when someone yep. doesn't really like one of them but thinks the other is better. But before we circle into that discussion, so you've used the term moral panic here. I think it's useful to kind of talk about exactly what's going on there, because your initial description of critical race theory for someone who would be described as woke in many places, well, I mean, that just seems like we're talking about systemic racism and the way in which we need to talk through the fact that systemic racism can continue to persist even if the laws are neutral, the structure of your society can still enable racism to exist well after the fact. You don't need racist laws to live in a racist society. And that seems like mm -hmm. a fairly sensible position, one which is evidenced by the world in which we live. And yet, when people talk about critical race theory in the US, and I said to a lesser extent in the UK, it seems to be as if this is the worst possible discussion we could possibly have, and that somehow it's not really about systemic racism, it's about something else. And as you've said, there's a kind of moral panic around critical race theory discourse. So mm -hmm. why has this become, and I realize this is a huge question, why has this become such a big issue in the United States? Why is talking about systemic racism a bad thing? Yeah, and I, you know, you say it's a big question. I also want to apologize for my gigantic answers. I always get a lot of crap from my editor about like these. All of these articles need to be shorter, and especially this one needed to be like way shorter. But because of the way it worked out, it ended up being multiple articles together. But part of it is also that it is just really hard to explain all of this stuff in a succinct way, there's just so many details that you have to tie together um, that it's, you know, I always end up feeling like a the conspiracy theorist myself, right? Just throw in red yarn all over the place. Let me also just note, since you brought you brought up the, the name confusion there, it's important that, to mention, I think, because I prefer The Skeptic, the UK version run by Merseyside Skeptics, who are awesome, progressive, genuinely progressive individuals. That one actually started in uh, 1987. So that one is the longer running one, whereas the skeptic, as far as I can tell, the first issue was in 1992. So if we're going to 
complain to anybody about whose name could have been different, perhaps, um, it would be the American version, the Shermer version. Anyway, mm, yeah, this, I, th- I think this once again proves that George II was right. Those American mm. colonies needed to be crushed because they keep stealing yeah. the best of our society and the best of our ideas and the best of our magazine names. God <laughs> bless the German wrong. monarchy. It would have it would have helped if you could have maybe curtailed a little bit of the American exceptionalism and rugged individualism, but. Sadly, no. I mean, I I actually suspect the easiest thing to do would be to go back in time and just not colonize North America. That actually might solve a lot of issues. I, yeah, I just can't imagine it happening. Uh, Just, you know, there's a horrifying kind of inevitability to that colonialism for me. Um, But you're right, it is totally contingent on so many things that could have just not happened. And that would have been better for everyone. And, And that brings us back to your question of like, why is it hard to talk about this stuff? It's because our society is built on blood and suffering and like the ongoing denial of that blood and suffering is sort of key to our economic and psychological health and well-being i guess is the way the short answer to your very large question um there are other reasons too it would be sometimes this you know like stuff that gets labeled crt and stuff that gets associated with and sometimes stuff that actually is in some ways connected to it i think has some flaws, right? One of which is it trends too far into white navel-gazing psychoanalysis. So I'm thinking of some versions of like the Robin D'Angelo kind of stuff. Though I think D'Angelo's white fragility itself is a plausible thesis. I think there's plenty of evidence that it exists. Um, I think an overfixation on what's going on inside the heads of white people subliminally or subconsciously or whatever is not a useful direction, generally speaking, to go in. And it's understandable, I think, why it has produced these complaints of like a Kafka trap where I can't prove that I'm not secretly racist in some way um, when it has been, I think, inappropriately applied. Now, I think that stuff is contrary to the core insights of CRT, which is that like, it doesn't matter what's going on inside the heads of white people, right? Racism can persist whether or not those people are subconsciously racist or consciously racist, right? The problem is the system is perpetuating, you know, past injustices. The system is, you know, creating spaces where harms are caused without any intentionality whatsoever. Um, So I think, So there are a couple of reasons that it's hard, right? One of them is that we have a bunch of well poisoners, you know, people who whose whose goal in life is to make this a harder, harder conversation to have than it needs to be. Right. And those could be people like Chris Rufo, who makes a living off of making this an impossible conversation. People like James Lindsay. It can be, you know, politicians who benefit from ginning up fear about critical race theory obviously there's lots of benefits to be had there and i think they have successfully done a pretty decent job of like creating a negative brand onto which they can sort of um you know attack and and target people um other reasons would be there's just a general discomfort like people we we are in america taught a very very sanitized version of our own history as people from other cultures can some to some degrees understand the british i think this is another reason like if you're looking for other places where this is going to go poorly it's going to be in like the uk for example where unpacking colonialism is not going to go great um 
you know, Americans don't want to talk about the history of slavery. We don't want to talk about reparations. We don't want to talk about, you know, the stealing of land from indigenous people. We don't want to talk about ongoing, you know, gender inequality. We don't want to talk about any of these sorts of things at this point. And a lot of the purpose of critical theory is to put all of that stuff as front and center as possible. And what you get is the same thing you got when folks like MLK were, you know, agitating, which is why are you ginning up conflict? Why do you make conflict where there isn't any? And I think he has the right response that like, there's a problem here. And the problem is we've never addressed in any substantial way, our history of racism as a country. And if we continue to not address it, we're going to continue to have a, it seems like a minority white supremacist party that is going to continue to run moral panics as a way to maintain enough governmental control to prevent any kind of social progress. Yes, this always reminds me of the work that goes on about enduring sexism in our society, which of course is intertwined with the ongoing racism, with the Mm -hmm. idea that one of the issues we have with gender equality in the workplace is that if you increase the number of women in a room, even if it's well below 50%, a lot of men will go, oh, well, there's a there's a lot of women here. So it turns out that even if you don't think you're mm-hmm. sexist, you can be in a situation where seeing more women in a workplace makes you go, oh, oh, there's, a, there's something strange going on here, which kind of talks to the institutionalized notion of sexism we have. And I think part of the issue we get when we start talking about critical race theory here is that for a very long period of time, we've taken both sexism and racism by their kind of dictionary definition. You are sexist if you don't like women. You are racist if you show a personal animosity towards people from outside your, and to use horrible terminology, racial kind. Part of the issue that has kind of been put forward, particularly by indigenous scholars around the world, is that this kind of definition of racism doesn't actually capture what it's like to experience racism within the world. And that many things which are racist are not animated by people going, I hate you, in the same way that many things which are sexist are not animated by misogynists. They're animated by the kind of structural system in which you live. But accepting that and going, well, we need to change our societal structures is something which is both A, hard, and B, it's kind of invisible to the dominant part of the society in the first place, and it certainly is in no way disadvantaging them. Well, there's this theory that if you change the structures, somehow that 75% of men in the boardroom, 25% of those men are now are now threatened by the idea there might be equality happening there. Yeah, it is a big problem. And the... So, so the dictionary definition thing we should first note, and I talked about this in a previous article, There, there's arguments about like what is the actual uh, – let's, let's just back up, right? I think probably neither you nor I are going to be hugely prescriptivist about definitions for the most part, um, except when it comes to the term conspiracy theory, in which case you are extremely prescriptivist, um, which well, is fine. No, m- more, um, more, more st- I'm more of a stipulator. I think for the terms of a sure. debate, we use a particular 
definition. If other people want to use that term in different fair ways enough. outside of academic debate, that's fine. They're wrong, but they're allowed to do it. <laughs> that's right. You're a very you're you're a weak prescriptivist. Let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know. The definition, like you don't do philosophy via dictionary because dictionaries tend to just be descriptions of how people use terms, which is often incoherent or, you know, internally contradictory. Part of the goal of doing philosophy is to unpack these concepts beyond what's being done in a dictionary and in theory, hopefully promote illuminating insights as a result of unpacking those kinds of concepts. So there is no, I would argue, one true definition of racism. There are multiple kinds of racism that like are useful to us, right? So they're like, as a concept, right? We don't actually useful, we don't use racism, um, but they're useful in the sense that like, it's useful to talk about psychological racism. It's useful to talk about people who are like explicitly racist like white nationalists who you know like what is their motivating structure is their racism driven by something else or is it just genuine you know like that's their motivating force um those are all i think valuable kinds of questions then there's systemic racism as we've talked about and i think it's very valuable to talk about systems that produce racist consequences in the same way that like the white supremacists would like them to but without any actual like white supremacists involved in the project you see both of those in dictionaries these days because they have sort of updated based on modern usage um and a lot of folks who were using the argument via dictionary are now angry and think that this is proof that the woke conspiracism has taken over webster's and whatnot um but yes, second thing I wanted to point to your just your, your comments about the the like gender and race. This is a really important point uh, because one of the key concepts I mentioned earlier in critical race theory is intersectionality. Uh, this is important for several reasons. First of all, I think it's a true theory. I think it's true. So the theory goes how you know someone's outcomes how things go for them in life is going to be impacted not by their separate pieces of their identity in isolation like your race versus your gender versus your religion versus your nationality etc it's going to be the result of those things intersecting in the individual in a way that may have distinct implications that are separate from any you know individual feature um the classic example that was used in the original formulation that is given is you know you have a rule that requires a certain quota of women in a workplace and a certain quota of people of color in a workplace, let's say. Um, but they, uh, because they don't take into account intersectionality, the company meets those quotas by hiring white women and black men, right, for example. And what ends up happening then is that black women uh, because of the intersection of their gender and and their race are not getting equal employment in this particular situation, right? So that's an example of intersectionality. Another one is classic one would be, you know, um, Im uh, um, illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants um, who are also individuals of color are at higher likelihood of experiencing and who are women are at higher likelihood of experiencing sexual assault because they're likely to be working in 
positions like cleaning where they're going to potentially be alone in spaces with individuals. They have less recourse because their undocumented status makes them less likely to go to the police. So they become higher targets, etc. Um, so this is a really, really important concept for making policies that actually help real individuals that aren't sort of easily avoided, easily loopholed, or just aren't effective with regard to those kinds of individuals. Um, your third point there about people who, you know, believe in some of these things, but not in a malicious kind of way is also, I think, kind of important. There's a growing, and this is actually true, I think, of a lot of the moderates who have mainstreamed this moral panic, I think a lot of them buy into a kind of scientism discourse that makes them really susceptible to the kind of like Charles Murray's of the world who come at them with a bunch of facts about IQ and they come away with this idea like, hey, maybe races really are things that actually exist and like there's a reasonable explanation for you know, why it is that some races will just never do as well as other races because of genetics or something like that. And like, at least we should have that conversation and we should have it in our serious, you know, big person pants voices. Um, those, I think, all of these things come together, right, to create, as you were saying, the situation where it's very hard to change any of this. Um, those people are less likely to be willing to acknowledge the structural problems, the um, you know, they're, they're less likely to get pushback from their communities and they end up, um, just creating a sort of reinforcement space where you'll believe that these things are obviously true. And when they encounter people who kind of are aghast at their promotion of these ideas, they, um, take that as further evidence that they are the important truth seekers in society rather than they've been sort of taken for a ride and are now doubling down on that ride. That brings us quite nicely onto one of the biggest fans of science and using data and skull measurement to understand the world, one Dr. Michael Shermer of the Skeptic magazine in the United States, who recently was complaining on Twitter that he could find people who could critique critical race theory in the pages of his magazine, but couldn't find any serious scholar or academic who was willing to defend the theory in those pages. And you very bravely, you stood up and you went, I, I shall be the champion you require to explain Jeez. what CRT is. Uh, first yep, of all, that was exactly how it went. Yeah, first of all, why did you want to volunteer to be in the pages of these of the skeptic US and B? How did that go? Uh, yeah, why do I do anything? Um, I, yeah, I, it was partly because the yeah someone sent me the tweet and there was language in the tweet where he specifically is like they won't defend their theories, not they won't defend them in my paper my article my journal whatever like like it was this kind of language that i think you see in a lot of critiques of everyone these days but especially of the woke which is that you know the woke won't debate essentially that they won't argue for their positions which i just i find absurd on its face given how much argument has happened in the past few years about these topics in so many 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 places um but i also think that it's an example of this kind of reproducing of the language of folks like Rufo and Lindsay, where the, the real implication is they can't defend it because it's not defensible and it's not defensible because it is 
this kind of absurd thing that we want to mischaracterize it as. Um, so I emailed Shermer and was like, I am willing to defend critical race theory in your um, magazine. I sent him a couple of articles that I had done on the topic. He liked he and his editor liked one that I had done for Arc Digi about how uh, we shouldn't abandon the term critical race theory because the moral panickers have sort of poisoned the concept and that we should stand by teaching critical race theory in schools um, and kind of explaining a little bit of why I think there was some confusion by some of the people who caused by some of the people who defended critical race theory in general, who didn't think that it actually was in schools when it is in the form of things like culturally relevant pedagogy. Um, I think it was an honest mistake on their part that has been widely mischaracterized as duplicitous because of course it does um so yeah i reached out he said you know it looks like you could do this thing and then it sort of became a weird series of pivots where it was like we actually have a piece explaining the history of crt uh, a chapter of a book which i later found out would be the book uh cynical theories by james Lindsay and helen pluckrose the individuals who i referred to earlier in the moral and the like hoax panicky stuff yeah so um, i should point out this would be a chapter which ostensibly would be describing the history of crt but from the position of crt is bad yeah and cynical theories is the most like cleaned up version of their shtick so it you know tries to be a like by the book here's just the way it is non-polemic kind of thing so in I that mean, sense richard yeah da richard dawkins really liked it and you, yes, and you know, yes. and if, if Richard Dawkins endorses something, it must be, I was about to say very good, but I couldn't say that with a straight face. No, I did an episode of Embrace the Void with Sam Hoadley Brill, who did a review of the book. I read parts of the book for that one as well. I do not think it is a good book. Um, I think it is an on-ramp to a bunch of conspiracism. Um, and this chapter is like a description of CRT. It is not a generous description by his own account. Shermer acknowledges that it is leaning critical, but that was the one that he was going to use for some reason, instead of using like a chapter from a critical race theory book that actually, you know, is arguing, explaining the theory. Um, but what he wanted was, in his words, a sort of full-throated attack on extremism and moral panic around critical race theory, um, specifically going after uh, Chris Rufo. And also, he suggested, why not also attack extremists who have defended some of these views? And the example he gave was particularly silly, I thought, which was just like Scientific America complaining about the lack of diversity in STEM and like explaining sort of factors that go into that along the like, you know, STEM pipeline, as it were. Um, so I started trying to put that together and I felt like that framing was problematic. I felt like it didn't act accurately convey the way, like the, the problem of the moral panic, because partly because I feel like rufo and Lindsay are known entities at this point should be known entities at this point like i know he said earlier people don't know who they are but like when you learn about them it's not hard to learn about who they are at this point like it takes three seconds to find out what level of like extremist 
I would I would say they are, even if you're like sympathetic to them, right? It's not it's not complicated. Um, but what is less clear, I think, is the way that folks like Shermer, Rogan, um, these sort of IDW types, the intellectual dark web, have promoted versions of these arguments, sometimes promoted Lindsay directly, other times indirectly, but essentially sort of continued to promote this material. So I wrote back to Shermer and I was like, I feel like it would be more useful to talk about the moderates in this conflict so that it isn't just and i explained that like i think it's very easy psychologically for folks to create a system a create a mindset where the moral panic is a war between two extremes and us moderates in the middle are just you know innocent bystanders in the crossfire and all of this um and that lets you kind of off the hook whereas i think people should be on the hook for their you know, mainstreaming of a sort of conspiracy riddled moral panic, including people like Shermer. And so I, you know, said, I think it would be good to talk about that. And he actually wrote back and was like, that sounds like a great novel approach. Um, and he, in that email, sort of expressed that he personally feels sort of gaslit, feels sort of suckered in sometimes by this moral panic stuff. So I wrote an article in which I used him as a case in point for how getting suckered into this stuff can be really harmful and problematic. And I and think that they, was where yeah. you made the mistake. Uh, so yeah. listeners to this podcast may well be aware that I wrote an article for The Skeptic oh, a long time ago now, back in, back in the annals of history before we even thought that Trump would ever have a political career, looking at the notion of reductionism, because Shermer had critiqued Freeman Dyson. Freeman Dyson is an anti-reductionist. Shermer is kind of an arch-reductionist. I thought that Shermer's complaint about what Dyson said was kind of wrong-headed, and that even though I'm not necessarily mm. in agreement with Freeman Dyson, that if you're an anti-reductionist, that allows you to say ghosts exist. I do think that mm -hmm. we can't, you can't use science to explain everything. There is there's some phenomena in mm -hmm. the world which is just not applicable to scientific explanation. And so I used right. Shermer as an example to motivate the debate as to how we should need to understand between, say, ontological reductionism, epistemic reductionism, and the different kinds of reductionism we can engage in. And Shermer, A, first of all, told me, oh, you need to remove me as the example. So he obviously doesn't like mm -hmm. the idea that people critique him. And then he sat on the article for over a year. And then obviously, we're not, <laughs> we're not going to publish it anyway, at which point my PhD supervisor at the time went, I think he kind of has to, because you know, you've, you've lost the chance to put it elsewhere. A year later, it's just not it's, it's not salient a year later. So we kind of actually emotionally blackmailed Shermer into printing the piece eventually. But yes, I think I think using him as an example, I don't get the idea he likes the mm. idea that he might say the occasional stupid thing. Yeah, I, like I'm not I'm not going to psychologize what's going on there. Uh, they went with a different piece. I'll be curious to see what that piece looks like. I think it will probably be a fairly sort of paint by numbers defense of 
systemic racism and if that's what they really desperately felt like their people needed to read fine i think that's a like a information deficit mindset that is not a useful approach to skepticism a lot of the time uh these days i also but i also think that like they were just very inconsistent in their description of what they wanted and wanted me to talk about in general so like at some points they were like we want to talk you know like once i sent the article in had some back and forth with Shermer. He sent it to his editor. His editor responded, we want you to talk about the ideas. This is pointless. We want you to talk about the ideas, not the people. But like, as I said, in their original request, they wanted me to talk specifically about the people and the relation, the political sort of ramifications, right? The way that this moral panic has implications because of, you know, um, radicalizing of individuals, stuff like that. Um, so they clearly thought that like people mattered to some extent enough to talk about Rufo. Um, but then it becomes this whole, why are we talking about these specific people? Oh, well, this person, you know, he actually literally tried to argue with me that James Lindsay is a nobody and doesn't matter, even though he's using him as a resource in the same magazine, which I feel like if you're using somebody in a magazine, criticizing that person makes perfect sense, right? Like that should be key to the conversation. Um, so... Yeah, I don't I don't think they were consistent. Whatever their actual reasoning is, I think they jumped around a bunch in a way that wasn't coherent. I also think that like Shermer himself claimed that, well, nobody would care what I think about CRT and then was later, you know, like on podcast talking about CRT all the time. So clearly he thinks that like it's worth him talking about it. So I think it's worth criticizing his approaches to it. Um, so luckily, the piece ended up in The Skeptic. Um and people can sort of read and decide for themselves which parts they feel like are useful or not. So there was a little bit of litigation of this debate on Twitter where Shermer arguably made false representations about you and the situation with the article wasn't there. Yeah, so the way this went, he... So after the whole thing kind of fell apart and he said they were going to go with somebody else, I commented on Twitter just that they had gone in a different direction and that I was sort of confused or frustrated by the shift of language from, you know, this is an innovative approach to discussing the issue to this is a pointless approach to discussing um, the issue. I hadn't expected there to be anything more about it from their side of things and then like the next day you know like i didn't i didn't tag Shermer in any of that the next day he tweets at me randomly or in retweet to that i remember um basically being like that isn't you know what happened we asked you for a critique of rufo's material and you refuse to provide it um, why can't you just critique something like, you know, and he puts up an example of Rufo's garbage Twitter memes. Um, and yeah, I thought that was a misrepresentation because I was actively in the process of incorporating some more Rufo. I, like I, I already included what I thought were sufficient critiques of Rufo's analysis, but I was including specifically a breakdown of you know, one of the many like ridiculous things that he sent me about Rufo and the moral panic stuff um, when they pulled the plug on the article. So it wasn't the case that I had refused to give them those critiques. I had just argued that I didn't think that it was particularly essential to debunk Chris Rufo's Twitter feed, just like I don't think it would be like super valuable 
to debunk Alex Jones's Twitter feed if he still had one. Um, except, you know, unless you're knowledge fight, like that's your specific, you know, like beat, that's your job. Um, I think Rufo has generally been thoroughly debunked in a bunch of very large publications. And like he, he actually literally just tweeted out that this is what he was doing. So I thought it was pretty silly like, like that we needed to continue to act like his concerns were genuine in any kind of way. Um, but I was still doing it because that's what they asked for. And I wanted to get the other stuff into the magazine. And so I was willing to make that adjustment. I just wasn't willing to cut the stuff about Shermer and they were not willing to accept that it seemed like. Um, so yeah, I thought that was inaccurate. I released the enough of the emails to make it clear. I thought that like, this was not an accurate portrayal of our engagements. I don't like to release emails because I don't, you know, I, I prefer that that sort of, because I think, you know, so people will look at that and think, oh, well, this is not a person I can trust to send messages to. And the reality is you can totally trust me to send, you know, send me messages as long as you don't then turn around and misrepresent me on Twitter. Um, so, yeah, uh, unfortunately, it was not sufficient. There were some other individuals who self-identify as skeptics who also promoted a bunch of misinformation about me and the exchange while I was in the process of getting the article properly edited and published over at the skeptic um when i did get it published and i put it out and i sort of you know it has an explainer about why i think what he was saying was inaccurate there was no corrections there was no pushback there was no response for the most part from pretty much anyone who had been involved in the like promoting of his misinformation on twitter so yeah i think that's unfortunate i'm not surprised of course i think People, you know, move on to stuff very, the next thing very quickly on Twitter, myself included in a lot of occasions, except for moral panics when obviously I talk about it too much. And so that's the problem in the other direction. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, Shermer said that if, if I published it somewhere else, he would respond. I don't expect him to actually respond. I don't expect any corrections or any introspection about any of this for the most part. Um, I think... I did it in the hope that like it would be possible to talk to a community that I think needs to hear some pushback to their like softer, gentler conspiracism. Um, but you know, that's, that's hard to get access to sometimes. Yes. It does seem from the way the correspondence went down and the way you've described how the article was initially pitched to you, that there was very much a both sides need to be represented in this debate. And as you've pointed out, right. Rufo's been very explicit about his political ideology and goals with talk around CRT. He's talked about the idea that they need to make critical race theory into a buzzword that can be applied as a pejorative to basically anything, I uh, use in the American sense, and I put air quotes around this, liberals want. And so it seems mm -hmm. it seems a bit weird, given this is part. I mean, this isn't just you know leaked correspondence we think might belong to Rufo. This is Rufo on his public Twitter feed, actually saying the right. quiet part out loud. It seems weird all these years later to go. Well, we should probably still give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I know he says he's doing it for political ends, but you know. Right. What if what if he's not? And there's a like there's a steelbot version of these things that I can put forward that I like I understand and it's I, I think I had included it in the original article sufficiently, which is, you know, genuine concerns about either pro problems or criticisms of critical race 
theory, like specifically the theories, which there are criticisms of that are fair, just like every other theory in the universe. There are really good Marxist critiques of critical race theory that I think have been integrated into it by more modern critical race theorists, um, which then, of course, makes them communists, which then just fuels the conspiracism all the more. Um, but there's also critiques of like the application of this stuff in various kinds of training, in education. It's not always done perfectly. Turns out some educational initiatives are terrible and like poorly applied uh what a shocker um and like those are reasonable concerns i i don't think i don't think scientific america is a reasonable point of serious concern because i think they're doing a pretty good job as as hard as one can as hard as this job is to like balance discussing these things in the modern period not because of uh, the woke won't let you say X, Y, Z, but because these are very, very complex issues. And it's why whenever anyone, you know, I think worthwhile talks about them, there's a lot of pausing and ahs and ums, I think, and stuff, because you, you really want to be careful when you are talking about these issues. But at the same time, there's so much to say. So you're trying to get through so much of it so quickly. And that's another thing is that like the word count they set for this was like, 2000 words max which is not enough time to discuss much of anything I, as i pointed out in the article debunking one meme by chris rufo takes about 500 words to get it like to really understand every piece of it um and i don't think that was the most useful like most productive use of that particular space and time so i wrote them a 2000 word piece that i think was valuable um and they you know, wanted more in it and they wouldn't expand the word limit. And so I've ended up with a long piece over at The Skeptic that I think is valuable and I think ties the whole, ties a lot of it together quite effectively and doesn't do this kind of both siderism thing, right? It explains, look, you know, there's a theory called critical race theory. It's real. It's in schools. It's mostly a good thing, but sometimes a bad thing. It is completely unjustified, the level of freaking out that is happening around it. And here's why people like Shermer, who claim to be the skeptic adults in the room, have just like credulously bought into this panic throughout and continue to do so while, you know, nominally critiquing folks like Chris Rufo. Yes, it does seem... It seems that the time for taking Rufo seriously is well past the time for actually expressing an appropriate degree of scepticism towards this moral panic is also actually well past. We probably should have been doing this years ago. It's kind of disturbing that there are certain reactionary figures in the US in particular who continue to go, well, but what if there is something to it after all? It does make me think about the whole flower gang issue going on in Finland at the moment. Okay, so mm -hmm. flower gang isn't a euphemism for drugs. But what if it is? What if it is? Right. That's what liberals don't want you to ask. What if it is a euphemism for drugs that nobody knows about? Yeah, I call this cheap talk skepticism. It's the kind of skepticism that like you see on television where they just, you know, just asking questions is the classic yeah, example of yeah. cheap talk skepticism, right? I'm not making the claim. I'm just, I think it would be worth it if some people had a conversation about this thing in a way that might harm certain people, but absolutely won't harm me in any way. And I will look good for suggesting it. Yeah, I mean, um, the, I think the is definitely classic case is, is the, you know, racial IQ thing. I'm not saying 
that different races have different IQs, but I do think that we should seriously investigate it. And people going, you know, the thing is, right. we actually already have. It's not that, you know, there's a reason why we're skeptical of these claims. There's been past investigation. You simply can't go, I'm just asking questions. When you're doing, I'm just asking questions, right. you've got to have that in the context of the wider debate. And it seems that that's what's being yep. ignored here particularly by the skeptic US. I hate the fact we have to keep on going, the skeptic UK, the skeptic US. Just change the name. Right. Uh, I agree. It's the example that I often come to, because I mentioned um, Charles Murray earlier, and another individual who I think has often credulously promoted various woke moral panics is um, Sam Harris, you know, there's the real, a really, really, really important argument that happens between Sam Harris and Ezra Klein about Harris's episode with Charles Murray, where he, you know, really credulously platforms the like, he calls it like the forbidden knowledge about, you know, what's in the bell curve and stuff like that. And Klein shows up with like a, a wealth of understanding about Murray's entire political project as a libertarian, his goals of like undercutting the arguments in favor of attempts to close the achievement gap between races because he believes that like there really isn't much left to be done because it's the result of things like IQ and stuff. And Harris's response is basically he doesn't care. Like he doesn't seem to express even curiosity about the larger context. And he considers it a kind of virtue. I think that like a lot of these folks think bringing that stuff in is a kind of, they, they will call it an ad hominem. And, you know, as philosophers, we hate that because that's not an ad hominem, it's context. But they see context as effectively taking us away from the beautiful platonic ideas that exist, I guess, somewhere separate from those contexts. Um, whereas I think, like, to understand any of this stuff, you have to understand the cultural and political worlds in which these arguments are taking place, or like, or none of it makes any sense, right? It all becomes very incoherent. Um, it only makes sense when you recognize that, like, there are agendas here of individual and group nature that most individuals here who are identifying as you know, kind of post-tribal or post, you know, group-oriented are some of the most in-group-oriented people I've interacted with. Um, you know, all of that kind of stuff, right? All comes together. Yes, context, it turns out, is the monarch of any situation. You kind of need to have context to understand why sometimes certain questions really should be off the board. Yeah, like there's no reason to platform a debate around Holocaust denial, and I don't think Shermer would actually defend that. At least um, not yet. And so not like, yet. yeah, it depends on the context, the day, the audience, I assume. But like, yeah, I think there's not not all questions need to be asked. Maybe it's some, you know, and I'll, I'll, I will always use the like CDC metaphor here in my philosophy class. I will have an argument about most anything, ethically speaking. Right. If one of my students wants to have an argument, like I, I often prod them about, you know, consensual cannibalism just to mess with them. And if they want to argue about, you know, 
Um, why isn't it okay for someone to sell themselves into slavery? I think that's an argument that we should have in a philosophical classroom, you know, where the argument is behind glass walls and whatnot. But you don't you don't take anthrax out in public and just like start studying it right out like street epistemology style, right? Like, and that's what some of these ideas are, right? The, you know, critical race theory, you can talk about how every single word in there is a trigger word for white Christian America. And you can talk about the way that Rufo has taken that and like a biological weapons master has, you know, weaponized that, aerosolized that in a way that is really, really harmful and dangerous. And these guys are wandering around it like it is a curiosity like it you know it, they're just not taking it seriously enough and i think are i would argue hiding their power levels to some extent right i think folks like Shermer are much more in the bag for these theories than they are willing to acknowledge and they will say i believe you know systemic racism is real i believe some of these problems are real and then turn around and say oh but you can't call it you know, racism, just because at every step of a person's life, they're being impacted by their race. Um, that's just name calling everything racism. And that's a disprove, not a, you know, like an unfalsifiable theory. And that's just bad arguments. Like this is just a series of bad arguments. And I don't think that they, I don't think that he's dumb. Like, I don't think these people are bad at arguing. I just think that like when they hit a blind spot, they become susceptible to very bad arguments and then back them up with other bad arguments. Yeah. When you were talking about the use of examples in the classroom, there's a nice classic example of that in politics back in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So our libertarian-esque party, ACT, which used to stand for the Association of Consumers and Taxpayers, they had a, a philosopher as a party leader about, 15 years ago Ooh, by the name start. <laughs> by the name of Jamie White libertarian did his PhD at the University of Auckland went off to do work in the UK came back to lead the party and he got ousted from the party because he had a regular opinion piece slot in the New Zealand Herald and in one of those pieces he decided to argue that actually incest isn't actually all that bad philosophically speaking and as philosophers mm-hmm. pointed out this is a debate that we have in seminars and classrooms. because This is yeah, normal for because us. Because it turns yes. out that actually the prohibition against incest is really <laughs> interesting because by, it, it turns out biologically incest for at least one or two generations isn't actually that bad. And we tend to worry about incest in a kind of long-term power relationship thing. What you don't do yeah. is have that debate in the national newspaper whilst you're trying to get your party into a coalition with the governing party. Sure, have that conversation behind closed doors, but you're not going to be taken seriously as a party leader if you're known as, oh yeah, you're the incest guy. You must be really into incest. I saw you arguing about that in the paper. Yeah, as the consensual cannibalism guy, I get what you're talking about. I have, uh, I was, I recently was chatting with uh, Dillahunty about this Shermer stuff as well. And, and it was a call in show. And one of the folks who called in was like, I should, they were suggesting that I should run for office. And I couldn't convey in the strong enough terms how hilariously bad an idea that would be. How like three seconds of digging into anything about me would just be a disaster for everyone involved. Um, because, yeah, ethicists' job is to like, 
is to do the thing that these guys claim they want people to be doing more of, which is talking about really dangerous, potentially really impactful ideas, ethics, like, you know, to, to talk a little bit about sort of the background concerns here, part of the thing that the anti-woke hate about the woke is that the moralizing can be powerful as a psychological tool and that you can, if you can convince people to believe something ethically, you can convince them to do potentially very unethical things, right? Um, what they miss is that they, they too are a moral theory and have become sort of radicalized in their own particular moral persuasion and are causing a bunch of harm in, in that direction um, as a result. And they, I think they've overestimated the severity and degree of extremism when it comes to woke moralizing. Um, but yeah, it's definitely the case that like ethics in particular philosophy more broadly is asking, you know, often potentially very damaging questions, very like, upsetting questions and it's good that we do that but we do it in environments where we have you know people are aware that that's what's coming right and you don't just sort of do it like out in public and like you said you don't do it when you're like running for big public office which is why i will never be running for public office um but it, it's important i think what these folks miss is that you have a really high responsibility if you're doing that to go in with a bunch of information, right? If I'm going to teach people about, you know, if I'm in, like running a class at the CDC and I'm teaching weaponized anthrax, I'd better, you know, know my my anthrax, right? And these guys are like wandering into like, like, you know, like, like a child who's wandered into a theater and does knows nothing about Rufo and Murray and these folks and they start publishing stuff and then they have to like semi-walk things back and then they get criticized for walking them back and it just becomes this cycle that they end up spiraling in the wrong direction um and so yeah there's a really high responsibility i think to come in well informed on these issues but most content creators are not able to or willing to do that i think unfortunately yeah sometimes you actually need to talk to the experts and not rely on the person with the loudest voice in the room yeah, and not just credulously promote that person and then try to go find some experts after you've promoted the moral panic for months at a time. Like part of the reason the experts don't want to publish in your journal is that they reasonably or your, your magazines, they reasonably infer that like your magazine has promoted this panic and will likely be using their content in a way that will not actually substantively push back on the panic, but will instead contribute further to it because that does appear to be your project. Yeah, often the the entreaty to why won't you publish in my magazine is not to further the critical voice. It's go, well, look, my, my magazine's very impartial. I mean, yes, I promote these things, but look, occasionally I also publish a few articles that critique them. Look how balanced my treatment is. Aren't I so sensible? Right. And the only reason I don't publish more of those is because for some reason I can't get more people to publish them. And maybe it's partly because like none of the people who I socialize with or have on my podcasts are in that persuasion because woke individuals are not welcome in anti-woke communities uh, because y'all are an exclusive in-group. Yeah. 
Sad times, sad times. Well, thank you, Aaron. That has been a <laughs> a great discussion, and also thank you for putting up for putting up with some of the uh, vagaries of my internet connection. Um, hopefully, it won't be obvious to the listener, but we had a a few outages along the way, uh, which meant that Aaron had to sit there very patiently waiting for me to come back online as I was furiously trying to get the VPN to do anything to acknowledge mm-hmm. that there's an outside world. Aaron, is there anything you want to promote or bring to people's attention? Yeah, and I'm used to being silenced whenever we're trying, you know, trying to promote this kind of information. So I, you know, assume that it was Shermer getting in contact with uh, some individuals to short circuit our conversation there, blah, 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 the disc, whatever. Uh, Yeah, and if you want to hear more about how horribly silenced I am and canceled I have been, uh, I have two podcasts as a uh, cis het male. Um, I have Philosophers in Space and Embrace the Void. I embrace the Void. I have interviews, sometimes arguments with people on a wide range of philosophical topics, often culture war stuff, sometimes moral panic stuff, sometimes conspiracism stuff. Um, we had a fun chat recently, for example. And over on Philosophers in Space, I get together with Thomas Smith from Serious Inquiries, and we talk about pieces of science fiction and the philosophy that they make us think about. And that's a lot of fun. And then you can find me at, and I'll just be very careful here, the capital T, the skeptic, the UK one, not the Shermer one, consistently. I, I, I There was a while there where I would just always said that and was like, um, you know, I have to highlight that because people all often get worried that I mean the Shermer one. Um, and it was, I was also going to be worried that I was now going to have to add in a caveat that I do have one article in there, but it's explicitly critical of the magazine and Shermer, but that never ended up being the case. So I can continue to just say, yeah, at the Skeptic UK magazine. And also come hang out in, oh, uh, follow me on Twitter at ATVPod, where um, I get in arguments with people like Shermer, apparently. And then come hang out in the Philosophers in Space Facebook group, where there are lots of cool people who don't believe in anti-woke nonsense. Excellent. I, and I, I want to heartily recommend Philosophers in Space because your recent three-part series on Consider Phoebus, the first culture novel by mm. e Banks, was not just a great discussion of a book which apparently I remember nothing of whatsoever, but actually caused me to go <laughs> back and reread it. Because it's always been my least favorite culture novel. And on rereading oh, it still is my least favorite culture novel, but I have a, a different appreciation of what Banks was trying to do with that first sure. that first book now. But it's astounding how little of it I remember. It's it's like reading a book for the first time, but the thing is, I know I've read it. I've got a physical copy of it back home with a broken spine. I read it twice for the episode, and the second time a lot more of it stuck. The first time I felt like... I think almost deliberately because it really is a kind of anti-narrative. It's a critique of war narratives. And so it deliberately kind of doesn't hang together in almost in a, like a narrative sense, you know. And so I think there is that kind of weird forgettability to it. Um, it also, to me, reads like, you know, season one of something great where it's like they, they've got they got the pieces, but they haven't quite got them all together yet. And then you have book two, Player of Games, which I think is one of the best pieces of literature ever. Oh, written. Play, um, yeah. So, you know, Player of Games, Accession and Use of Weapons are my favorite three culture novels. Mm. And 
if you're going to get into the culture read player of games first because it is almost the perfect into in 100 introductory text it tells you everything you need to know about culture culture citizens and special circumstances which is not a euphemism special circumstances nope. is a real thing. well it is but yeah, it is yeah, yeah. precisely <laughs> it's uh it, you yeah. you can tell ian m banks grew up in the uk because that's where euphemisms of that type end up becoming the the official way you refer to things anyway yeah the culture is the radical transhumanist utopia that all proper progressives i think should be angling towards and yeah player of games gives us like the a picture of that actual society whereas the first book kind of gives us the view from the outside and i really think that like that negative space is much easier to appreciate once you have that like player of games core to it but we're going to go in order through the rest of the books now so we will we will get to all of the good things in good time yes i am i am looking forward to it thank you aaron it has once again been a pleasure thank you as well and good luck uh with them yes always them the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R.X. Denter. Our show's conspiracy producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com, and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, nothing is real. Everything is permitted, but conditions apply.